0: You're listening to FunChack. I'm Ross Butler, and my guest today is Avi Turetsky, Managing Director in Landmark Partners Quantitative Research Group. Avi has just co authored a very interesting paper called Calculating the Outperformance in Dollars Introducing the Excess Value Method. And it does nothing less than reimagine the way private equity performance is measured and perhaps even compensated. Avi, it's been quite the Lockdown Project.
1: <laughs> it has been. Well, we we started this before the Lockdown Project, and I'm happy to talk about that also. But um, yeah, this has been quite an interesting time. How's it, how did it come about, this paper? So this started, uh, we were having a conversation, a few of us at, at Landmark in our quant research group, were having a conversation with some of the team members at uh, NMPARA, the New Mexico Public Employees Retirement Association. Uh, and the question came up, uh, one of us, I think it was they asked the, the question of, could we measure private equity outperformance in dollars or private market outperformance in, in dollars? And the, the reasons to, to, to do that, it's, it's, it's interesting to see how private markets firms create value in dollars, how they outperform a benchmark in dollars. Uh, and also could have compensation implications, like we're we're talking about. Uh, we had some initial intuitions about how that would work. Those are some pretty strong in, intuitions. That also, uh, as we were talking about the project with academics, with practitioners, there's a strong intuition that people had, and it turned out that that intuition doesn't really work. Uh, And that just sparked us to be interested. And then being kind of nerdy quantitative researchers, we felt like we've got to keep pulling on that and pulling on that. Uh, And we ended up with something really interesting. uh, And I think also very useful, as you were saying at the beginning.
0: So it's, in other words, it's not as easy as it sounds in practice. What's the, but first off, why did they want this dollar calculation? What's what's special about it? What, what's wrong with just a kind of a rate or a multiple that everyone's used to?
1: Yeah, so um, those are, are, are good points. There are uh, very good ways, and uh, I'll even say there are correct ways to measure the outperformance of a private market investment versus a public market benchmark uh, as a multiple or rate. There's KSPME, the Kaplan-Shore PME, which. A 1.5 PME would tell you roughly that my private market investment uh, did 1.5 times better or 50% better than the public market uh, benchmark public market alternative did. Uh, The direct alpha method will tell you that a 5% alpha means that I performed 5% better than the public market alternative as a a rate. uh, to get from that to to dollars adds something interesting. It means that if I as an LP invest with with the GP, I might want to know really how many dollars did that did that relationship, did the investment in that fund create for me above what I could have gotten through through that 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 benchmark. so to to make that a little bit more concrete, uh, let's say that I'm investing with a generalist private equity manager. And I think that my alternative in my portfolio would be to invest in the Russell 2000. Uh, I might wanna know, not just did this manager do better than the Russell 2000, which and Direct alpha can tell me, but I might wanna know also how many dollars did that, uh, dollars or pounds or euros did that manager create for me above what the Russell 2000 would, would have. Uh, there's a performance measurement aspect to it, which is, I want to know, I have a, a relationship with a manager, I'm spending time, I'm going to their annual meetings, I'm managing a portfolio, I have staff, I want to know how much money I'm making relative to simpler public markets alternatives with, with each of those relationships. But there also is this, this interesting compensation angle to it also, which is, as an LP, I might want to know, of the alpha that this manager is creating that the, that this investment creates how much of it am i keeping for myself versus how much of it am i giving to them in in fees so i can start thinking in terms of you know maybe i made a hundred million dollar commitment to a certain fund and maybe i calculate that that fund over the course of its fund life delivered 40 million dollars or 50 million dollars in profit for me Uh, above what I could have gotten by going into a a public market investment. I can then say, well, what were the management fees? What were the carry that I paid to that manager? Uh, Am I happy with with the split that I received? And then you can also think in terms of, well, could I design a different compensation measure such that instead of giving the manager a fix, say 20% of all profits, no matter how well they did relative to my public markets alternative, can I have a compensation plan where uh, I actually write in specifically that the way that the private manager is going to be compensated is based on some split of those profits above the market?
0: Right, so it's making the private equity industry more transparent, perhaps more efficient, Perhaps even fairer, and the uh, the guys at New Mexico asked you for this, and you thought, oh yeah, that's easy—a
1: bit of long division. That was our 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 initial thought, and I think that was their their initial thought thought too. There's um the 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 way that uh, a lot of people think originally to, to do this is you could take KSPME the Kaplan Shore PME, um and one way to to calculate that is it's a, it's a, it's a multiple. So again, a a 1.5 it's, it's calculated as a ratio. And the enumerator of that ratio is the future value of the distributions from the private market investment. So if there's a, um, if I'm in a private equity fund, it makes me distributions and say year three, year four, year five, I take the future value of all that to year five. Uh, I divide that by um, the future value with a, contributions or what the contributions would have achieved if they were invested in a public market benchmark so the the, the intuition is I could just take the, the enumerator which is basically the value of my private market investment minus the denominator which is basically the value of my public market investment and that should just give me a value in dollars um, so you know I, th- I think most of us thought that we could just do that that should work that'll give us the answer and we'll be done. Um, and it it turned out that 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 doesn't work other than for very simple cash flow streams. Which is why I, I guess this is a first. It's why no one's done it before, because the concept seems very obvious. Well, you know, that's another interesting question, though. Why had no one done this before is 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 interesting, right, because even if people would have thought that the intuition of doing it is clear and and easy, there's a question of, well, you know, for for a long time, people have been talking about how much value does private equity create relative to public markets? Does the average private equity manager outperform public markets? Does the average LP portfolio outperform public markets alternatives? Um, So, you never see anywhere at least that i've seen before before we came up with this someone actually saying well this fund this manager created x dollars more than a private market investment did um similarly you hear lps say say frequently uh we're afraid that we're paying fees to private market managers that may outstrip the value add that the private market managers adding so why no one that we know of had previously tried to quantify that, right? You would think if, if people would think, and we would have thought that the way to do it is pretty straightforward, why are we so far into the life of the private equity business? And no one has done that before. And I don't have a good answer to that, but it's it's an interesting question.
0: Yeah, right. And, yeah, and so to an extent, if this uh, method, which we're about to talk about, um were broadly adopted and it would it would kind of end that debate to a large degree or clarify it to a large degree because it's kind of raging in the financial times at the moment every week there seems to be a private equity performance billionaire factory kind of conversation it's utterly circular and never gets anywhere and it's been going on for decades really
1: yeah and and this can can help you to partially answer that question there are there are challenges uh, with with answering that question in a in a in a decisive way. Um, part of it has to do with what what benchmark do you choose when you're looking at public markets? You want to have a benchmark that's going to reflect the risks that you're taking in private markets. That's not so straightforward. You want to figure out what the effects of leverage are going to be, um, which 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 isn't necessarily straightforward. Uh, but excess value, the the measure that we came up with. Is is another tool to help you you quantify that. So you can start to answer questions like, um, you know, let's say that we agree that this manager is tracking the Russell two thousand at a at a certain level. Um, really, how much value are they creating? You could even do research where you could look across the private equity industry, if, if you have the the data, and say, you know, does the private equity industry as a whole um, outperform certain public market benchmarks in dollars and How concentrated is that outperformance in in certain managers? And how does the how do the fees that people earn track the outperformance that people are are delivering? So this this definitely, I I don't think we we could say that 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 this measure will give the definitive answer to questions like that, but it's definitely a useful tool towards Mm -hmm. getting at that question in a whole bunch of new and interesting ways. Well, i'm sure
0: we've whetted appetites now so maybe in terms of the nitty-gritty why what's the what's the problem why wasn't it intuitive
1: yeah so uh it 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 turns out and as as we went through i'll also say that we we discovered more and more that wasn't intuitive and more and more that was interesting um every every place that that that, that we went or with with different questions that that people asked us about it so uh, we we spoke about that that initial in, intuition and this gets a, a little bit in the weeds so apologize for people who 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 don't want to get this much in, in, into that but we uh if you take that that KSPME intuition if you take the the basically the future value of the private market investment minus the future value of the public market investment uh, that doesn't work if the investment or the fund has has multiple distributions coming out of it Uh, And the reason for that is let's say you have a fund that uh, gives two distributions to its LPs, one after year five, one after year 10. If you take the distribution that took place in year five and you future value that to year 10, you could then reward or penalize the manager for for market moves when capital was no longer at, at, at risk. So to make that a little bit more concrete, um, let's say that I'm the private market manager. I give you a fifty million dollar distribution at at year five. Twenty five million of that is profit. If I use the KSPME measure, then if the market were to double between year five and year ten, that twenty five million of profit would look. If I'm thinking about this correctly, would become fifty million of profit measured at year ten, even though that extra twenty five million wasn't something that I created as the GP. That was something that just happened, you know, under the assumption that you took the money that I distributed to you and, and and put it in the in the market. So we needed a way to to freeze that amount, and that's what what we call it. So each time that a distribution takes place, we freeze the profit on on that uh, on on that distribution. So we're basically starting with KSPME and and the, the direct alpha measure, but then we're adding adjustments to it to make sure that when capital's not at risk, the manager's not being rewarded or or penalized. Um, We also found some other other really interesting characteristics of this. Um, Like we found that there's a difference, but we could actually separate out what we call alpha value, beta value, and interaction value from what a manager produces. Um, so we could say, so let's say that you have a uh, manager, let's say you have a uh, $100 million investment in year one, you return $200 million uh, in year five. And during that time, the market goes up 50%. So the uh, market would have returned 150 million for a $50 million profit. So, we say that's the return that the manager would have, that the LP would have received by going into the benchmark. So, that $50 million we call beta value. Right? That's what you would have gotten through the public market beta. Uh, so, there's a $50 million profit, which is excess value. But then we saw that we can actually separate out that excess value to what it would have been worth to pay for the investment in year one, which is. The, the alpha value and that allows you to benchmark that across managers. And then there's this other interesting thing called the interaction value, which is if the manager is creating value in an up market, the two actually interact and grow in, in an interesting way too. Um, so there are a lot of other interesting characteristics, interesting bells and, and whistles here um, that you can play with to, um, get deeper under the hood of manager performance, and you 've really drive this in some interesting ways so I had to reread the interaction
0: value part of your paper a couple of times and i 'm still not sure I get it let me let me try my version on you is it is the idea that if you uh, create alpha in year one and leave that alpha alone, it will compound at a higher market rate and you can't you shouldn 't be rewarding the manager for yeah for, for that alpha over years when it 's just sitting there
1: in year two, three, and four, is that it yeah. so so it 's uh, something like that, and this is uh, you know one way to to, to to think about it is let's say that i 'm considering investing with two managers at the beginning a, a private equity manager and a government bond manager. Uh, I might find that at the beginning if i if I measure the value that they created present value to the beginning of the investment that each of them was worth, say, $25 million. So I'd say, okay, at the beginning, I would pay $25 million for either of those investments. Uh, The private equity manager, those $25 million at inception are actually going to become a lot more money after five years or after 10 years than a typical market then would that $25 million in, a, in in the government bond investment, just because private equity in general tends to grow faster than government bonds do. So one way that you could think about it is that if we go to our case where the manager put $100 million in at the beginning, right, the $200 million distribution after five years market did $50 million, one way that you could think about it is the 50 million that we call beta value, that's what the manager could have achieved by going into the public market, that that really belongs to the LP and the LP shouldn't be compensating the GPU for it. Let's say that the present value of the, other 50, of the other 50 million to inception was really, let's say 25 million, just for simplicity. And this math isn't gonna work exactly, but let's say that it's 25 million you could say, well, that 25 million of alpha really belongs to the GP because that's money that the LP couldn't have created without the GP, right? So you have 50 million that the GP could have created, that the LP could have created elsewhere. You have 25 million that the LP could not have created at all without the GP. And the remaining 25 million is created because of the work that the LP and the GP do together. It's because the GP was investing in private equity in the market that the LP wanted the money invested in and added the alpha. So we go pretty far in the, in the paper not to suggest any specific compensation regimes or any compensation agreements, but one possible way that someone could think about it is that what we call beta value should go to the LP, what we call alpha value should go to the GP and the interaction in some way should be split between them since they each play a role in creating that. Right. Yeah. So I was also thinking of, of
0: alpha and, and beta because um, as I understand it, this method would assign timing the market to beta, but there is a skill element to timing the market. And then also there's a fundamental advantage in structural advantage to private equity being able to time the market.
1: So you could make a conceptual argument against that. Yeah, you you could, and 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 this is another really interesting point, and this is a point for any alpha method that you you, you use. As we think about it at, at Landmark, one of the advantages of these types of methods is that they help you separate different sources of 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 return. So what what you so so you could look at a direct alpha measure, for example, at being just outperformance versus the Russell 2000, which would be broad, broad US small market equities. You could look at it at outperformance versus different sectors. So if you're a tech specialist fund, or maybe you're a fund that invests in different sectors, you could look at the outperformance versus different sectors. And you can also think of the value that a manager creates through through timing. And that's important because different people might have different feelings as to the degree to which different types of skill really exist and managers can really do it, right? So so one way that I would think about it is um, if I have a manager that um, I think has great operational skill, right, has a strong ability to grow companies better than most private equity firms can, and I find that they have a track record of creating a lot of value in their companies even after you control for timing and even after you control for sector and even after you control for geography, then I'm probably going to say, you know, I feel pretty comfortable that this is a manager that has strong operational alpha capabilities. Now, let's say that I find that I have a manager who uh, in their recent funds, let's say over the last 10 years, has made a lot of money because they've been in the right sectors at the right time. So that gets to part of what you're talking about with timing, that also gets to part of talking about sectors. Um, I'd probably say, let's say that that manager is a telecom specialist, right? I'd probably say, well, in that case, I'm giving them no credit for their sector selection, right? And for timing, probably less because they're only able to do one thing, they have to put money out the door and probably not giving them much credit for that. But let's say that uh, I'm looking at an industry generalist firm to go to the other extreme. And let's say that I find that they have a 30-year track record of always being in the right industries at the right time. Or not even always, because nothing's ever always. But let's say they have a 30-year track record of overwhelmingly being in the right industries at the right time. And let's say that I look at the GFC, the global financial crisis, and I see that they had pulled out of the market completely in 2007, 2008, and they had deployed a lot of capital in 2009, 2010. Um, then I'd probably start to think, as you're saying, you know, well, maybe this manager has skill in in that way. And, and this is a really interesting question. One of the, one of the big advantages of all of these alpha tools, the KSPME, the direct alpha access value is that they help you to quantify, to measure those different sources of return. So you can actually start to say, okay, how much of this manager's value came from their sector choice how much came from their market timing how much came from operational value creation over time Uh, how much credibility do i give to each of those sources of return and what do i think where do i think that points me for diligence and what do i think this tells me about their ability to create value going forward
0: right so your value attribution could become much more granular does this mean that lps themselves kind of need to be more sophisticated as well? Because when you're using blunt tools, you can get away with not being sophisticated.
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's, that's, a, that's a good question. I think if you look um, across financial markets in general, there's a trend going back a fairly long time and of uh, tools getting more and more sophisticated, of, of deeper and deeper quantitative analytics uh, coming into the market. Um, private equity, uh, at least in, in, in my experience, and it sounds like you're asking the question coming from, from the same place, um, private equity has lagged behind um, quite a bit in that, right? People, people tend to still think overwhelmingly in terms of IRR and TVPI, which are things that you'd probably call blunt tools. Um, in terms of quartiles, which are also you know pretty blunt tools. Why would I think that the Worst manager in the top quartile is meaningfully better than the top manager in the second quartile. Um, So that's right tools like these um, are somewhat more more complicated to measure. And I think that that will be an obstacle to adoption. And I think that that has been an obstacle to adoption for a lot of these alpha measures. Um, But they also once you can get under the hood of them. They also have some some pretty meaningful advantages to them. Yeah yeah i mean I, I don't i don't want to push the point too too far because at this point it seems
0: like a quibble but um you could make the argument that part you know the private equity industry has been very successful and it has um used these kind of rule of thumbs these heuristics pretty successfully and i have no doubt at all that your method and model will be much better and fairer the, the, the problem is when you get into the mindset of trying to optimize things, you start down this rabbit hole of structuring and overstructuring, and you end up with, um, you know, global financial crises. And and what, one of the beauties of private equity is is the structure is is not optimal, but there but there are some really simple mechanisms that ensure that incentives are aligned and people only get paid out when value has been unambiguously created and that's not something we we've, we've touched upon yet but, but your model allows for more flexibility on that point and so well, let, let's talk about that point specifically but also the broader point of complexity
1: yeah uh, yeah and and that is that that complexity point is a is a good one I, I remember being at a, a quant conference uh, a couple years ago where um, someone had had made the point they were arguing that um, one reason that a lot of hedge funds don't do as well as people expect them to is that they'll um, hire 50 PhDs to find statistically significant relationships and data and all 50 will find something because that's what smart PhDs do. Um, and it'll turn out after the fact that um, 49 out of the 50 were just overfitting data or phishing right and what they were finding. Um, was 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 not really there. And I think that gets to, to your point, which is very valid, that people can be, you know, so analytical, right? Or so data mining or, or so hung up on structures that they um, miss things, right? That they miss things, that they do things that end up being counterproductive, that they think that they found things that aren't really there. Um, and this is somewhere that I, I think they're, they're there are methodological issues there are or there are there are ways to make things like structuring to make things like quantitative analysis more rigorous um but that's certainly a balance right there you could you could be um so simple so straightforward that you're 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 missing a lot of useful information that you could use as an investor, but you could certainly swing the other way too, where you could get so complicated and so in the weeds that you end up creating things that that aren't really there. Um, and, and that's you know, so back to the to the point about about our measure about excess value. Yeah. So the the idea that that we have is that the the carried interest way of compensating um, is 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 good for incentive alignment as you're saying and that it, it means that the private market manager um, is paid their their performance fee for their ability to create profits which is a good first first cut um, but our, our thinking is that well really, most lps we think most lps go into private markets not just to earn profits they go into private markets because they want to outperform what they could do elsewhere right if you could if you could achieve the same return by going into public equities that you achieve going into private equities why would you go into private equity your money's your money's locked up right so you do it to to outperform so the idea here is that we can do something that, yes, is more complicated to, to calculate. We provide tools to, to help do that. But the end result is that you come up with something that's pretty straightforward and where you've actually isolated the, just the, the value created that's due to, to outperformance. And our thought is that that's a step that's probably useful for people to take. Yeah, so
0: it's the excess value method to, makes private equity a relative return asset class. Exactly. And that's that's um that's that's not that doesn't necessarily um benefit LP or GP. You know it's not a divisive issue because you can you it allows GPs to be remunerated in times when perhaps
1: everything's underwater. Yeah so so that's right. So our our thought is so we 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 don't believe that if you look two years from now, you're gonna find that everyone in private equity is being compensated that way. Um, but we do think that there are going to be a group of, as you're saying, both LPs and GPs who like the idea, that there are going to be a group of LPs who say, you know, yes, we invest in private markets in order to outperform public markets, We want to pay our private market managers for their ability to outperform public markets. We want their incentives to be explicitly to outperform public markets. So um, excess value is a tool that we want to use to compensate in that way. And we think exactly as, as, as you say, that there are going to be GPs, not all, but that there are going to be GPs who like that idea also. Because GPs will look at it and they might say, well, I'm a strong alpha producing manager. That means that I can earn more money, or money more consistently, than I could under carried interest, because you you could say, you know, let's say if you take a concrete example, let's say during a certain fund life, the public markets are, are are flat, and as a private market manager, I deliver a seven percent return to my LPs. Well, under carried interest, I typically would earn nothing because I didn't hit the pref, right? I earn no carry, no performance fee. Under excess value, you could earn something pretty substantial because you've beaten the market by 7%, uh, and that's that's pretty good. Um, It can also help to to diversify the revenue stream if you're a GP, um, because there are times when carried interest would pay more if the public markets do very well and you don't outperform public markets. But there are also times when excess value-based compensation would pay more. If you're creating a lot of alpha or public markets are, are are weaker. So, you know, so again, our we don't we don't think that everyone's going to adopt this in, in two years. But as you said, we don't think that this is something that favors LPs or favors GPs. We think it's something you could look at it maybe it it favors GPs who are really able to outperform public markets and want to be compensated in that way. And it favors LPs who are interested in that type of investment. Yeah, it just, yeah, it favors the most productive, which is, what, which is what you want. Right, which is kind of what you would want as an LP. And if you're a GP who does that, you would also presumably want to be compensated for that. Yeah.
0: And also, you know, we forget that, you know, because of asset price inflation or whatever, 8%, that's historically quite a high hurdle, really. And if, if you look at the world going forward, well, that might not be so easy to make going forward. And if I'm an LP, I want GPs, you know, extracting all the value they can, not thinking we're never going to make 8%. Let's forget about it. And also, if I'm a GP, well, I want to make all the money I can. So I can't see why people wouldn't bite your hand
1: off over, over this, particularly at this period, top point in time. Yeah, and I, and I think I think what, what what you're talking about are reasons that it's becoming timely. I, you know, I I I don't know the history of where the eight percent preferred return comes from. I mean, it's it it's clearly trying to be a proxy for for public market performance. But as you're saying, there's right, it's there isn't consistent eight percent public market performance. That's a very right. That's a very rough rough tool, um, a very blunt tool. Um, but also, as you're saying, it's just it's it's timely. Both for LPs and GPs, you mentioned earlier the uh, new paper out on the on on that topic. Um, yeah. It's a it's also a very timely subject for 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 LPs to think about how much value is coming out of their private market portfolio.
0: Yeah. So how do you think this? Um, well, well, first of all, there's there's the measurement aspects and there's the incentive aspects. There's nothing to stop people using using this as a measurement tool tomorrow, is there?
1: No. Um, And we are, uh, we're, we're, we're happy to make it available. Um, We have a uh, white paper that's out, you can go to our website, request it, look at it. We um, Landmark Landmark partners. Yeah, landmarkpartners.com. And then if you click on the publications link, you'll, you'll see it there. I think it's the top publication up there on the on the website. Uh, We also have an Excel tool that we make available. Um, so, um, people can, can request that Excel tool and the Excel tool get, it uses the examples in the white paper to show how to calculate it. So we're, we're, we're happy to, to, to do it. Um, and there, there are, um, we're spending, you know, one of the things that we do in the, in, in our quant research group, uh, is we spend a fair amount of our time with LPs and GPs. Uh, who like to bounce ideas off of us. Uh, and, th- and that's part of where this, right, where the whole, um, where, where this started, where this whole idea started was one of those types of conversations with the team at uh, New Mexico Para. Um, so uh, I've spent in the, in the last couple of weeks a fair amount of time on the phone with, with LPs, on the phone or on Zoom with LPs, helping them walk through how to do these calculations. So we're, we're generally happy to share that.
0: So you're not taking royalties?
1: Uh, no, you know these these methods. You know we we see them as useful for us, right? So so you know, of course, there there is a, as always there is a selfish angle to it, which is um, we like having the relationships with LPs and GPs. Um, we like we're we're data hungry, so to the extent that we can do work for people that gives us data, um, we 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 like doing that. Um, but um we we typically see products like like this like excess value or the direct alpha measure before that which is also developed in-house at landmark um as tools that we want people to be able to access plus there's also another element which is we don't really expect people just to take our word that we figured out how to measure this. We think people are actually going to see how it, how it works. They're not going to, right. No one's going to agree to compensate you using a measure if they don't know how the measure is. If we just say, you know, trust us at the end of every quarter, we'll tell you how to pay us, but we're not going to tell you how <laughs> we figured out that amount probably not going to work so well.
0: So, so there's the measurement angle, but aren't there simpler ways of structuring um, carry to make it uh relative so preferred return what are your thoughts on uptake in terms of actually getting these into lpas
1: yeah so there there are and and tell me if this is the the direction that you're you're going some of the people who read the paper early um, gave us suggestions for other methods that they thought could accomplish similar things so one would be if you have a compounding market-based preferred return um so to make that more more concrete, we were speaking about the the eight percent preferred return. Um one way that people do that is called a compounding pref. And what that means is if um if I call a hundred dollars, let's say it's a simple fund, then after one year the GPS to return to the LP $108. After two years, it's uh 108 times 1.08, right? So it, it becomes something more than 16. It's like probably 17, 18 percent, whatever that is. Um, so um, I think, yeah. yeah. So um, so one way to do it would be to take a compounding pref, but instead of it being 8 percent, it's whatever the market did during the time that, that the dollars were were invested. Um, it you could then talk about, you know, if if you really want to make it akin to excess value you would then say that uh, I, as the LP, only want to pay the GP for the dollars that they delivered above that preferred return. So I don't want there to be a catch up. It turns out that the excess value method that we create can do that, that that idea of a compounding market-based PREF is uh, what we call a, a special case that, that works within the excess value model. You can parametrize the excess value model um, to get that. There are, there are other um, things that you, you could do. So for example, one idea that, that someone came up to us with is, well, uh, let's say that a, a private equity fund makes 10 investments. And let's say that I actually know the cost of each of those 10 investments. And I actually know the profits. If I'm able to separate out the cash flows from each investment from each other investment, which you can't always do, then maybe I could just say the profits on each investment are the profits on each investment. So I can actually, in some way, have something more akin to a deal by deal carry, but where I'm benchmarking it off of a market return. And it turns out that you can do that also. And and this is, you know, I think one of the interesting things about excess value is you know, in a carried interest, people talk about, do I want to go to a European waterfall? Do I want to go to an an, an American waterfall? How do catch ups work versus the pref? Um, one thing that excess value allows you to do is to revisit that. You could say, you know, yeah, if I want to do a kind of extreme European waterfall compounding market pref, can I do that? Yes. If I want to do an extreme American waterfall compounding market pref, can I do that? Yes, right, the American or deal by deal. Um, But it also lets you revisit and say, well, really as an LP and GP, what are the concerns that we both have? And I would think that, that both parties would typically say, well, we want the GP to be incented to do well on the deals, to manage the deals in a way that's optimal for the LP. We want the GP to know that the GP is going to be paid for that, going to be paid in a timely manner, in a way that incents the right behavior, right? Maybe a a European waterfall doesn't really accomplish that. Um, At the same time, if you're paying everything out in an extreme American waterfall, you know, that puts the LP at clawback risk, right? And maybe that clawback risk is too high. So maybe the extreme American waterfall isn't the right way to uh, do that either. And you can actually play within the excess value framework to think about okay, if we were starting from scratch, if we were designing this from scratch, how would we design a preferred return? How would we design a payout system that would create uh, as close as possible to an optimal alignment between LP and GP, optimal incentives and fairness both ways? Which again, gets to your point of saying that, you know, this the excess value idea, doesn't really favor LPs or GPs, it favors transparency and alignment and productivity. Well, it sounds to me that there's
0: there's a real elegance to the methodology because it solves it's a lot of the perennial problems seem to just fall into place within the same construct and most of the problems are around time you know the time dimension is the one that everyone forgets and, yeah. uh, and this is a time machine.
1: Yeah it, it, it gives you a, a, a measure or, or another way to, to to think about it this is something that that one of our, our co-authors at Anamparo put out Um, Or said, even if it, even if excess value doesn't give you the answers to all of these questions, it it forces you to think about them and it gives you tools to to measure them. So, um, so one example of that, um, a a question um, that someone had asked was, well, if I'm going to use excess value for compensation, I've really got to think about the benchmark. That I'm using. So, so, so these are considerations in, in addition to the timing consideration that, that they're talking about. So, there's one is right. So, one is timing consideration. How do I think about clawbacks? How do I think about incentives? Um, there's a consideration of the benchmark. How do I think about really what benchmark do I want to use to measure the manager? Um, things about nav nav reporting, right? I've really got to think about under this method. Whether the manager is reporting to me accurate navs on a quarterly basis. And what our co-author has said to that is, you know, yes, the excess value method does require you to think about all these things. But really, if you're investing in private markets, you should be thinking about all these things anyway, right? When I when I ask you, I invested with this private pri- private manager, um, what benchmark do you want to compare them to? What I'm really asking you is why did you invest in this private market manager? What did you want them to do that they weren't able to to do elsewhere? Um, And to the extent that you weren't thinking explicitly in that way, and I'll be very fair and say, I think that most people don't explicitly think in that way. But one of the things that excess value allows you to do or forces you to do is to start thinking about those types of questions, which I think are very useful. Yeah, that's interesting. That probably is what underlies the whole private equity performance
0: debate. I find it a little bit patronizing the way that people assume lps aren't sophisticated this, this um, make obvious the areas which people perhaps feel intuitively now they're going to have to think about them whether well, they
1: adopt your method um objectively yeah and 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 i i i would certainly agree with you um uh on what you said and i i don't it's 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 None of this is saying that people aren't sophisticated who don't invest in in in, in P. This is like everywhere um, in in financial services and asset management investing, where you get more and more sophisticated tools as as you as you move on. You know, uh, I said so we we think of ourselves as pretty sophisticated. The tools that we use now are much better than the tools that we used five years ago, which are much better than the tools that we used ten years ago, right? I mean. Yes, if you looked at how we invested 15 years ago, by today's standards, we were a lot less sophisticated than we are today, but it's a matter of, of constantly progressing. So outrageous prediction time. Um.
0: <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Whatever time frame you like, five or 10 years, how, to what extent would you say excess value has become uh,
1: you know, employed? Oh. Well, I, I I generally don't like making predictions, especially if I know people are going to record them. <laughs> that are going to be able to test me <laughs> down the line. So I'll say that uh, I'll say that um, no matter what I say, there's a good chance that that I'll be wrong. But um, I think that if we're talking five years from now or maybe ten years from now, um, my gut feeling is that there will be a fairly large number of fairly substantial LPs who really buy into the idea of uh, measuring their managers based on their outperformance versus public markets, compensating their managers based on their outperformance versus versus public markets. And there will be a fairly substantial group of GPs who buy into that as well and like to be compensated um, for that as well. I don't think it's it's going to be universal again. I think there are going to be people who like um, simpler methods who say, "I like carried interest. It gives me the 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 alignment um, that I need." Um, but th- there is, you know, I, as as we've been talking about this also, as we've been talking about excess value and predictions for the future and and where it 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 might go. Um, it's it, it'll be interesting to see because here again there are intuitions like. Um, a lot of people that we've spoken with start off by saying by, by having a gut feel that this is going to be very lp favorable right by saying that this is something that lps are really going to like um, because it helps them to compensate just for our performance and I, I could see some gps going for it but really maybe just emerging gps who don't have a lot of leverage or maybe people will only do it with lps who are very large and have a lot of leverage over them um but the more you think about it, you see, you say, "Well, well no. This actually has a lot of appeal um, to to larger GPS, and maybe in some ways, right, especially to larger GPS who think that they can create a lot of value um, out of it." So this is so. Again, so so my thought is that if we're ten years from now, um, there's my 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 probably wrong prediction is that there will be a. Fairly large number of fairly large LPs who see this as a standard way that they compensate, um, and a fairly large number of GPs, including fairly large GPs, that are excited about the idea to work that way.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It feels to me like a positive evolution. It feels to me like it, it may well be the future. So I wish you the best of luck with it, Abby.
1: It's very interesting. Thank you very much, Russ.
0: You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for
1: alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.